it's really interesting that we use the language of feet to describe our spiritual or our moral well-being. In fact, sometimes we use the language of feet when we think about the doctrine of providence. So we find our feet, which means we grow comfortable in a new situation at Ridley or in a new church after the arrival of kids or in a new job. We kick goals in life. Or you could be footloose and fancy free. (laughs) Their feet could be swift to shed blood, but their feet could also be wonderful bringers of good news. We could find our feet, but we could also lose our footing, slipping on black ice, as I've done one too many times in my life. Though I've never actually seen someone slip on a banana skin. Though that's what the, that's what the cartoons say you should do, right? So last week when we looked at Psalm 121, we discovered a, a beautiful little definition of providence that God watches over us. In fact... In Psalm 121, verse 3, He will not let your foot slip. But we know that often we lose our moral or spiritual footing. And life is complicated. So we have to choose our steps carefully so as not to fall. Well, if last week we looked at God's overreaching care... We see in Psalm 73 today that this psalmist is testing God's goodness for his feet had almost slipped and he'd nearly lost his foothold in verse 2. Psalm 121 last week was designed to bring us comfort in our walk with the Lord, but Psalm 73 is not so much bringing us comfort as providing us with a challenge. Not to envy, to be stable on our feet. So the psalm begins with a really broad Statement, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But his experience is a little more complicated. For we learn in verse 3 that he'd envied the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then this rolling tide of sins effectively... These envious thoughts, verse 4, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they're free from common human burdens, they're not plagued by human ills, pride is their necklace, they close themselves with violence, from their callous hearts comes iniquity, their evil imaginations have no limits, they scoff, they speak with malice. Of course, all this, he still envies them, despite this moral compromise. With arrogance they threaten oppression, their mouths lay claim to heaven, their tongues take possession of the earth. They think they're above all challenge. And people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Free of care, they go on amassing wealth. 
they're just full of it. Full of beautiful experiences. They're full of their own reputation. And people love them for it. Presuming that God would never find out that their heart of hearts is corrupt. The psalmist is really tempted to think that what he'd learned about God being good to Israel was untrue. Surely there's a pattern to this world's experience. Surely goodness should lead to rewards. Surely badness should lead to punishments or penalty. Isn't there cause and effect in this world? Why should the wicked prosper? That's not fair. It's very easy to to go down this track, right? And just assume that the way things should be needs to be explained in ways that are hurtful to people. So Israel Folau's commentary on the bushfires over the summer picks up on this basic idea. If bad things are happening in Australia, it must be the direct result of some particular sin, some particular evil in our land. And in Israel Folau's mind, that was same-sex marriage. It's really easy to try and get a one-on-one correspondence between a bad thing that happens, therefore it must be caused by some kind of sin. Job's friends were also wrong in the advice they gave. They just assumed that if Job had suffered much, he must have sinned much. That there's a simple correspondence between behaviour and outcomes. But we know it's more complicated than that. And that random things happen that seem to have no explanation without any sense of proportion or justice. In 1755, an earthquake hit Lisbon in Portugal. It was the 1st of November, so All Saints Day. Many people were in church celebrating Mass. But on that very morning, an earthquake hit and perhaps 100,000 people were killed in Lisbon. Potentially the worst earthquake ever to afflict our world. All the churches in Lisbon were destroyed and they were full of people. So no wonder that those non-Christian, perhaps anti-Christian philosophers of the Enlightenment use this occasion to discredit Christian faith. Why would a good God allow his own people in church celebrating Mass experience this kind of devastation? Surely Christian faith, they argued, ought to be rejected. It was already a period in history when people were having second thoughts about the teachings of the Christian church. And this just made the cause of Christians even more difficult. It's hard to explain the goodness of God in a world where good people suffer, where evil people get away scot-free. 
So Christians have, over the centuries, used some philosophy to explain the issue, drawing down categories from Aristotle to suggest that there are different kinds of cause, first cause or second cause or direct cause or indirect cause, often known in theology as double agency. And it's useful as far as it goes. Calvin gave the illustration, making his uh, point about providence, that you could have a stinking corpse lying out in the sun, but the sun doesn't cause the stench. The sun is creating the conditions whereby this corpse might rot and smell, but you can't blame the sun for the smell. Picking up this kind of idea that there's different causes for different effects. And the scriptures acknowledge that there's this kind of double agency. After Joseph experienced the malevolence and trickery of his brothers, he could say, don't be afraid. You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Genesis 50, 19 and 20. There seems to be a recognition in Joseph's heart that there's two causes going on here that God has caused something and the brothers have caused something too or Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ Peter recognises that the people had crucified Christ but God had intended something greater that he might be raised as Lord. God has made such a magnificent world that two causes can have one effect. But it doesn't detract from our existential question. What do you do? How do you manage those difficult circumstances? How do you grow into mature discipleship so that the difficult circumstances don't shake you, causing you to lose your footing? How should we advise the psalmist to stop envying? Well, brothers and sisters, we need a guide for our path. Verse 15. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children, he says to the Lord. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the Ridley Chapel. (laughs) Then I understood their final destiny something something clicks it's been a wearisome task struggling with his sin of envy he wants to give up 
He's worn down. He's sick of fighting. Who will ever know, he says to himself, if I'm harbouring these thoughts in my mind? Will it make any difference if I look at that website? Why can't I have some luxury after working so hard all week? Now he goes into the sanctuary of God. He comes before God. He comes to the place where God has promised to be found. He confronts the law of God. He experiences the mercy of God and has a breakthrough moment. It had been foggy all round, but all of a sudden the haze lifted. Just like Dave Horn in my history class last week. <laughs> there was confusion on his face. We, we kind of take that for granted, right? <laughs> Dave, I've, I've warned Dave about this. I've warned Dave about this. And there was something that happened in the lecture, I can't remember what, where Dave's face kind of established some peace. (laughs) Where something clicked and all of a sudden he understood their final destiny. (laughs) The psalmist has come to that place where he's been confronted with God's word and experienced God's mercy and somehow now sees life under a different light. He's understood that though those wicked are prospering, their end is nonetheless sure. He's pulled himself back from the details to see the way God is managing the cosmos He's reminding himself of the big story of history. But he's reading the book from the end first. Now, he says, verse 18, surely you've placed them on slippery ground. They're the ones, actually, who are about to slip now. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. There's no substance to them. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, reflecting on his own envy, I was senseless and arrogant. I was a brute beast before you. His sin had depersonalised him. He'd owned his envy, the senselessness of that path in life. And now he sees his own place in God's world so much more clearly. Verse 23, I am always with you. You hold me, you grasp me, by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. It's no longer this psalmist who's about to fall. Now we discover that God has him by the hand and God is guiding him with his counsel and he's feeling confident not only that he won't fall but that God will bring him safely to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? Verse 25. And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The wicked are filled with follies, but the psalmist has learned what it means to be filled with God. That God works through the psalmist's weaknesses, not just in his strength. He's not trying to stop the prosperous, the wicked from prospering, but he is recognising that there's something more valuable that he has. Verse 28, As for me, it's good to be near God. I love that. The psalm begins, surely God is good to Israel in a really abstract, general sense. But now he's recognised it's not just that God is good to Israel, but that God is good to him. This is one of the great insights of the 18th century revivalists. In their world where God was being pushed out, where philosophers, one perhaps were arguing there is no God, some perhaps were just saying he's lazy and on holidays. The revivalist said, no, you think God is absent or distant? He's actually close. And Charles Wesley, in his hymn writing, actually writes a hymn about the Lisbon earthquake and picks up language from Psalm 73, trying to remind people that though the world might shake, God is closer than our breath. Listen to this verse from the Wesley hymn. By faith we find the place above, the rock that rent in twain. Beneath the shade of dying love, and we in the cleft remain. Jesus, to thy dear wounds we flee. We sink into thy side. Assured that all who trust in thee shall evermore abide. The psalmist from the first to the last verse has let us track with his own spiritual journey, feeling like he was about to slip, but discovering that God in his providence has grasped his hand and is guiding him to glory. The answer to problems of suffering or evil undeserved in the world is not in the end more philosophy. You can explain evil but accidentally explain evil away and make it sound like it's not a problem after all. We don't need more philosophy. We need purity of heart. Not a new thing to do but a new attitude to cultivate. And when I say purity of heart, I don't just mean uh, moral character, but often in the Bible's language, 
purity of heart means single-mindedness or spiritual focus. And actually, though we think it's hard to explain how good people suffer or the wicked prosper, our own eyesight, when we think about it, is a great example of what we do to take the next step. For in daily life, if your vision is healthy, there'll be lots that's out of focus on the perimeter of your vision, though the thing of ahead ought to be well-focused. So much in our experience in the world will provide a blurry understanding of what's going on in God's superintendence of this world. Some things are mysterious, some things we don't understand. Some things God allows to be blurry or confusing. But to manage the blurriness, we've got to make sure we have laser-sharp focus. In which case we can deal with those things that aren't quite so clear. God guides us. God provides the single-mindedness that we need. One note might be discordant in our life, but we can be confident the whole peace will in the end resolve in a major key. Friends, feet are important, not just in our lives, for getting around, but in the Bible, because feet are an image of the direction you're heading. And we set our direction by nurturing our heart. And we nurture our heart by keeping God in clear focus. As for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. Amen.